This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow standard orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. I say. You will obey. It is the word of Landrew. Joy to you, friends. Welcome to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show about the original Star Trek series. This is a show where we dive into the characters, concepts, cliches, and other things that don't start with C about the original series. My name is Drew, or Landrew. I'm the TOS editor for the network. With me today is my co-host Mike from Commentary Track Stars. Hello. And John Tenuto of of Trek FM fame. <laughs> and StarTrek.com fame. And everywhere else. Hi guys, how are you? Yeah, it's, uh, it, thanks for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, for those people who don't know, John is pretty much the world's uh, foremost authority on all things con. I think it's safe to say. I love any chance to talk about con. I'm there, so I'm ready. <laughs> Before we get started, I had a question. Why con? Well, you know, um, I, I, I think like a lot of people, I feel the... Uh, the uh, you know, Wrath of Khan is, you know, arguably the certainly one of, if not the best, of the movies. And I also think it's very, it's a very important film for the franchise. Period. You know, um, I I think you know when when the film came out uh, in 2002, uh, it was a huge box office hit. It broke all the records for opening weekend, even more than Empire Strikes Back. And you know, it was very well received by the critics. And had that film failed. Um, which it certainly could have, uh, but if it had failed, then I, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here today. I don't think Star Trek would have, there might have been a Star Trek 3 perhaps just to try, but I don't think the franchise would have endured if 2 wasn't as good as it was. And I think a lot of that is due to, you know, the on-screen talent, especially Ricardo Montalban, and of course the behind-the-scene talent like uh, Nicholas Meyer. So, um, you know, that as a fan, I'm just fascinated with 2 and the character of Khan, and then by extension, then, you know, the, the prequel of that, which is Space Seed. Um, you know, and I think that the use of Khan in the new movie that sort of validates that idea a little bit that Khan is, Khan is, if there is anything like Batman's Joker in the Star Trek universe, I guess Khan is as close to that um, as we have for the original series, you know. So I think um, that, and I just, I, I love looking at the, Using well, you know, when I do my day job, I'm a sociology professor. But I, I love researching original documents, and and um, been very fortunate to have access to Gene Roddenberry's archives and also to uh, Nicholas Meyer's archives, and just to see the incredible talent and you know going around the limitations that existed to make Space Seed, to make uh, Wrath of Khan. It's just fascinating to me. So someday I would love to see all the behind the scenes material on, you know, on Into Darkness too. So that's Khan. I think he's about as important as you can get in, uh, for, for non-regular Star Trek characters. Yeah. It, and of course, when you, when you said 
2002. You meant 1982? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know why? You know, why I said 2002. I said it because of um, I got my nemesis soundtrack today in the mm-hmm. mail and I've got 2002 on my mind. <laughs> so, yes. June 4th, 1982 is when it opened up. So uh, today we are doing, I guess you could call it another C for commentary, but I, I, I personally prefer Conumtary. No, no, no. Conmentary. No, that doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Yes, it does. I'm going to say con- I okay. I can't even. I don't even remember what you said. I said conumtary. Let's 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 put this let's put this to a. John has the deciding vote. Are we calling yes. these conumtaries or conmentaries? Well, I like uh, where we have the word conmen in there because that's what they called all those guys uh, behind the scenes who, you know, Yalcom and everyone were called consmen. So that kind of works if we, because then you get two for one, you know. So conmentary? Yeah, so you get conmen. It's sort of in there. Okay. I like that. You, you, I win. You guys are both wrong. Um, yeah, <laughs> you, you, but, but oh, fine, fine. We'll if, do you wanna, this democratically. if you want to edit this one, you can call it whatever you want. No, oh, that's okay. okay. You can edit it. <laughs> All right. So what we're doing is our first commentary for Space Seed. And we, we figured we would make this a, uh, a a series, you know, over the span, spread them out maybe over a couple months or whatever, and and uh, return with John to do Wrath of Khan and Into Darkness as well. But we're starting at the very beginning with Space Seed. So, All right. if you guys are ready, we will give a countdown and then start up the episode, just like before. You can watch either the original effects or the new effects because they line up in terms of the time. And uh, Thank if, you, Dave Rossi. Yes. And if you guys are ready, we will start it up in 3, 2, 1, start. So there's the Enterprise. Yes, there's the Enterprise. Big beauty ship. So we have the, uh, the 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 typical original series cold open here, and uh, they're coming up on the Botany Bay. Something weird. Mm-hmm. That that's how it always opens. The Enterprise is almost to something, which is good. I mean, it's better than you know. Well, we're bored today, and nothing's going on. <laughs> it's very different from like Next Generation era. Trek where it would start off with maybe a little cute um, uh, character moment, whereas this kind of you know the original series kind of ends with those. But yeah, the original, um, you know, the very the if we kind of go to the very start of it all, um, before Khan was even Khan, he was somebody named Harold Erickson, then eventually John Erickson, um, then eventually Ragnar Thalwald. And then eventually uh, uh, Siebel Khan, and then eventually Khan Noonien Singh. But but in the very first original um, proposals for this episode, it did open up interestingly with a cute little moment. Um, the uh, the Carrie Wilbur, who is the person who came up with the story for the episode, a very famous journalist, and also uh, you know wrote many episodes of different uh, 1960s, especially. Uh, Lost in Space, you know, episodes. And um, even before Star Trek's on the air, 
uh, it was on August 29th, 1966. He sends in this 18-page proposal and um, outlines kind of what he would, would like the story to be. And in this proposal, um, it opens up with Kirk and Spock playing chess. Um, and then Spock ch actually cheats in order to win and gets caught and is a little bit embarrassed by it, teased by McCoy. And um, then they kind of go on to the bridge. They're called to the bridge because what we've just seen now, uh, then that occurs. You know, they, then they come across this, this sleeper ship. But they did have that moment. And um, Gene Kuhn, uh, when he responded to that original proposal, one of the things he said was no more chess, that we've, we've had too much chess already. Um, and, you know, plus he also kind of sets Wilbur uh, straight on who the character of Spock was and that he wouldn't cheat and so on, which, you know, you have to forgive Wilbur. There's no episode has aired yet, you know, so he's really writing this with a minimal of information of who these characters are. Um, and uh, But there was that little teaser initially and also a little bit of a setup with Marla where we get to see her um, all, all before the action occurs where they find the sleeper ship. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so I know that, that Wilbur, but he's credited as writing the screenplay along with Gene Kuhn, right? But how, how did that exactly work out in terms of logistics? Uh, did Kuhn do a draft after Wilbur or, or what? Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's funny that when you take a look at the, uh, both the production memos and then, you know, you, you sort of get a little bit of a picture of what really, how these shows really worked back then. Um, you know, today's world, certainly writing on a show like Enterprise or, or Voyager, um, you know, the credits are always, you know, very carefully <laughs> constructed. They were back then, too. There was a Writers Guild, of course, back then as well. But um, the, Roddenberry actually writes the final draft of this episode, but receives no credit for it. Um, and that's part of what I think is the, the sort of the miracle story of how good this episode eventually became. It starts with Wilbur's proposal, where he does, you know, it's actually a wonderful 18-page uh, proposal where he uh, outlines, you know, what, what Earth is like uh, a little bit, you know, from the 60s, uh, the population problems that are occurring. It's, and it's written in a very, you know, you know, by a man with talent. So, you know, you get lines in there like it's a world where penalties are no weapons against despair, you know. I mean, so he paints like this very bleak time period, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 years after the 60s. And, uh, you know, it, one of our big problems is population. So what we do to, to help with that problem is send criminals into space. Um, and... Um, you know, that that's where the sort of the genesis, if you forgive the, forgive the pun, the genesis of that story begins. And what you're seeing right now, uh, she, she was in the original version of even Roddenberry's script talking to someone in the hallway, which sets her up as kind of a woman out of time. And one of the big things you see in all the versions of all the scripts is they had a lot of trouble with her character. How do you write her? so she isn't pathetic. And they, they use words like that to describe her. They knew they had a problem with that character. How do you get someone who's supposed to be as good as Kirk, as good as McCoy? You know, she's Starfleet. How do you get her to, you know, become a traitor, then change her mind again, you know, just sort of back and forth all over emotionally? Um, and so, so Wilbur's original sort of proposals there, then Kuhn gives him some suggestions 
uh, in early September, again, even before the show first airs. And then uh, Wilbur writes a draft of the script, which isn't quite what they wanted. So then Kuhn takes a stab at it a couple of times. And then it's Roddenberry who comes in at the and when and I mean at the very last minute I mean at the very last minute and fixes everything, and a lot of that has to do with the very last minute casting of Montalban that fundamentally changes the character. Although we can kind of get into that as we as we go along here a little bit. So here we are. But in the original, oh I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say in the original version of the. Um, sort of Carrie Wilbur's treatment and a script when they come on board the ship as they're doing right now uh, and find all the you know cons people asleep there were there was a crew that was there as well sort of to sort of a prison crew and um, who were there to as volunteers to watch these criminals and one of them was out of the sleep chamber kind of knocked out um, in a coma and his name was Henderson and a lot of the script involved uh, this character of Harold Erickson, who eventually became Khan, trying to figure ways out of the cell to go kill Henderson because he didn't want to reveal to Kirk who he was. So that element that's in both Space Seed and in Star Trek Into Darkness, the Khan kind of trying to hide behind a fake identity, was was there in the very, very beginning. Yeah, that that is something that I noticed while while watching this again uh, today in in preparation is that. You know, a, a, a lot of people obviously gave uh, Abrams and his and his uh, team a hard time for keeping the fact that it was Khan a secret. But that really is not only in Into Darkness, but also in this original episode. Yeah, I mean, there's if you read the original uh, drafts of the of the scripts and the proposals and so on, uh, you know, I don't know whether they did or they didn't do that when they made into darkness but boy there are there are themes in there that uh that kind of carry through so there there you know that weren't in the that were and weren't you know both of those in space seat as it was filmed that wind up in the um you know in in into darkness and you know from Khan wearing starfleet clothing which he does in this episode you know i mean there's just a whole bunch of little themes like that 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 carry through um, the theme of glass, which is in this episode a lot, you know, uh, here you see Khan behind glass. He's going to put Kirk behind glass at the end of the episode. Um, if you saw, re real fast, if you saw Shatner's phaser just fell, um, and that was a blue behind, one of the few on-screen on bloopers, and you can see DeForest Kelly looked to see if they were going to use that take or not, I think. Uh, but they just kept going. <laughs> you can see his phaser's missing right now. But, uh, you know, and then in... And then in Star Trek Into Darkness, they've got a lot of glass, too. You know, the glass is a huge theme in Star Trek Into Darkness, whether it's the, you know, the exploding glass, you know, ring, whether it's Kirk's glass, whether it's the bro broken glass on Kirk's faceplate with a, you know, con behind glass. Um, there's a whole bunch of glass in Space Seed and, and Into Darkness. So here we are with our, our introduction to Khan, uh, who's played by Ricardo Montalban. And uh, you're you're quite fond of him as well, aren't you? Oh, I I, I tell you, there there's very few people outside of my, uh, you know, my father that I would call a, a hero. And Montalban is definitely one to me. He was just a wonderful man, an activist, um, artist, um, 
had a just amazing attitude about life. He used to speak about his the back pain that he suffered, including when he was making this episode, um, and and in you know Space Seed. And you can see it clearly when he walks in in um, some of the sequences in Star Trek Two, and also in uh, you know shows like Fantasy Island, the back pain that he suffered, and um, and that he the way he thought of that as sort of a gift. You know that that was a gift from God. I mean, just to, to the way he thought about things, I, I've always been impressed with him. And of course, he's a wonderful actor. Um, you know, going back to the 1930s, his casting I thought was brilliant. Um, I think Joe D'Agusta, who's the person who cast him, um, we were really fortunate enough to have a wonderful conversation with him uh, as part of our research about the making of this episode, and. Um, you know, he's he, uh, Joe D'Agusta himself is just he cast all these people, you know, uh, too. And, um, uh, you know, he cast the Brady Bunch, you know, I mean, he cast a lot of sort of television uh, history. And um, I asked him what would make him think, you know, the script, even the very later scripts by Kuhn going into December um, had the character as a Viking-like character, there is a reference that's still in there where they mention sort of, you know, he's sort of like a Viking or something like that. But the, the you know, he was still this, he was Ragnar Thorwald. He was this European Viking, you know, blonde-haired Aryan, you know, genetically engineered god. And uh, I asked him, what, what would make you think of Ricardo Montalban for that role? And he had told us that they did blind casting on Star Trek, that that was one of the things Roddenberry wanted to do. I mean, Roddenberry really was serious about, I mean, he may not have had his vision of the future as developed as he did when he came to do Next Gen, but he was serious about these ideas about humanity. That wasn't just something he came up with after. It was in the conception of the way they ran the show. So he believed, they, they had the policy of you look for the best actor, and then a part could be rewritten if it needed to be um, for whatever reason. And that's exactly what happened here. It, it was The reason he chose Montalban was because he knew he was reliable. They knew he was talented. He had worked with Roddenberry on Roddenberry's very first science fiction uh, piece, which was called The Secret Defense of, I think, 117, uh, like a Chevron Playhouse, you know, 10, 10 years earlier. And so Montalban didn't have to try out for the role or anything. He was, they knew who they were getting. And, um, but they needed somebody who was physically strong and also very uh, powerful as, you know, as this sequence, you know, here uh, right before this when McCoy was sort of looking at him and performing his original um, uh, um, diagnosis of him, you know, he mentions how strong he is, how quick he's, how quick he's healing and so on. So they needed somebody who was physically imposing, but who could charm Marla, which was the big thing. They needed somebody who the audience would buy this woman falling for immediately, and that's why they thought of Montalban. And so it was because of Montalban's casting that the character's background was changed, his name was changed, all of that to kind of fit Montalban a little bit better, although, of course, Montalban is not, you know, from that region of the world either. But uh, the idea was to sort of put... To, to 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 make the character fit a little bit better. Yeah, watching it on on Blu-ray and everything, it it seems like you know you're talking about how he's not you know Sikh or or whatever kind of supposed to be. Um, it it looks like they actually used like makeup on him in order to maybe make him darker. Is that accurate? 
or not? Yeah, they, they yeah they did. Uh, you know, when you look at like um, the way that they designed his costumes and and his uh, his hair, you know, all of that was to try to lend as much authenticity. I mean, he had played Montalban played. There wasn't anything he didn't play except perhaps a, a white European. I mean, he played uh, uh, Asians. He played. Uh, Native Americans. He played certainly played uh, Mexican Spaniards, um, you know, but not necessarily, you know, not not. Uh, uh, he's not going to play a guy necessarily from I, you know, Kirk's role or whatever. But he but he played so many different ethnic groups, and that was pretty common back then, you know, uh, to not necessarily be consistent with the actor with the with the role. But um, I think it was. I thought it was good that they chose. You know, you, you, how many Indians did you see on television back in the 1960s? I would imagine not very many. And although he's the quote-unquote villain, um, you know, he's a man in a certain situation, you know. Uh, so th that he plays a non-sort of stereotypical role, I think that kind of goes along with Star Trek's attitude. And it's great that there's uh, a very powerful Indian character who's not a stereotype in this episode and that he's not played by a person you know, from India, that's another discussion. But So here we have uh, Khan waking up, and he's about to uh, confront McCoy. Uh, this is a really interesting scene for, for McCoy. Uh, it kind of adds a lot to, to his character as well as, as Khan's. This little sequence here where you see the cut to the scalpels and then the con they did actually film i have some pictures of that they filmed him not only taking it as they just showed you now they filmed him holding it so you see him holding it going back to his bed with it hmm. and uh, that's all edited out it's not you know it's a little tiny bit of a deleted scene but it adds a little more to the suspense that you don't quite know what he's going to do with it does he ha does he have it with him or not you know um, it was a smart edit i thought Definitely, yeah. And what makes this great with this scene great with uh, McCoy, as Mike was saying, was that he probably better than anyone on the ship knows what Khan is physically capable of. Yet he still stands up to him, which is just you know really a a statement about who McCoy was as a character. Yeah. Yeah, I like that he's all cold about it. You should just cut my corroded artery. <laughs> and it earns the respect of Khan. I mean, he's he's almost as much of a psychologist as he is a, a, a medical doctor in this particular scene. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. They're still using United Spaceship, which is kind of shows you how long that script was, you know, in in production <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know they had rand initially in this episode um so that again shows you you know that was all before um grace lee whitney left the show and uh, she played a mostly a role to show us who marla was um in the episode but eventually they, they had to rework that because she was no longer part of the show by the time they filmed this which they did uh interestingly right around Christmas time, 1966, uh, which is about when they were filming uh, Wrath of Khan, you know, 15 years later. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm not to not to defame Shatner, but I think that Maltaban aged better. 
in, in the intervening 15 years? Well, I like these, um, I mean, if you look at the contrast in these two guys physically, I mean, uh, <laughs> I had asked um, Joe D'Augusta what he remembers about offering this role to, to Ricardo Montalban. And uh, he had said that, you know, he got Montalban's measurements over the phone and he thought Montalban was kidding, you know. <laughs> but he gave him his real measurements. And you could just see the difference between uh, them physically, you know, within, with, 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 with this scene. Uh, Shatner's a little smaller, you know, but still beats him, which I think is a great message, you know. They had a memo, um, what I think is one of the most important memos in all of Star Trek history that Kuhn wrote um, on like September 7th, I believe it was, 1966, where he, he challenges Wilbur, who's writing, who's going to be writing the script, the first pass of the script to uh, create a um, create a villain in his his Erickson, you know, the original character, Harold Erickson, to create a villain that was Kirk's equal, that they thought that this was the first episode that they would be able to do where Kirk was really tested by an adversary, and that in essence the two characters were flip side, like Kirk, if Kirk was in a similar situation, he may do he may have done similar things if he had, had had these experiences, and that they really were to to be mirrors to one another, um, intellectually, uh, if not physically, a resource in terms of resources. You know, uh, their their use of resources and so on. And I thought that that was a really important memo because to me that it, it it sort of forced it forced Wilbur eventually Kuhn and, and then Roddenberry to really beef up this character. Um, and, and make him be equal to Kirk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and probably one of the reasons why uh, Khan is such a memorable villain is because, you know, I mean, for, for a villain, it, you can't, he can't just stand on his own. He needs to be some sort of foil to the, uh, to, to the hero. And he certainly is that. Yeah. And this, uh, the conversation that they're having now with the selected breeding, they're talking, Kirk and, and Spock are talking to one another. Um, the, that was not in the original uh, conception of the character. He was, he was strong, but he wasn't super strong. He was strong because of his, you know, he was a barbaric criminal, actually. Initially, he was just a criminal. And he was sort of barbaric in that he was a he was product of that, that, that sort of future horrible uh, 40, 50 year time period from now. Um, and, uh, you know, I like that they're sort of trying to piece this together a little bit um, here. And I think it was the earlier scene. It may be in this scene as well, but um, where Kirk suggests that, I think his initial suggestion is, well, maybe they, you know, they were put into space to, to you know, because of population or something. And what he's doing is he's basically giving you what the original premise was. And Spock says, well, that's kind of silly, because that was one of the, the issues that came up in the memos. You know what, they wouldn't put these guys on ships. I mean, if you have a population problem, right, you don't, you, you don't waste all those resources putting criminals on ships. And so I love how they sort of piece together and figure this out little by little, showing that, you know, both Kirk, Kirk and Spock have that kind of intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. 
you know, there's another thing here where, um, you know, a lot of people talk about how, you know, now, obviously, since we're past the 90s, this doesn't really fit into real world history. But they, they do also say here in this episode, I noticed that um, a lot is not known about this time period, you know, and, and, and I wonder if that was an intentional thing which was put in since, you know, we they're talking about something that happened, you know, less than 30 years after it was produced or whether they just assumed that the show wouldn't uh, hold up to that time or, or whatever. But it's it's an interesting little line looking at it from a, a 2014 perspective. Yeah, there's definitely a vagueness in the... Um, they He did specify in the original that, that uh, August... Um, uh, that August 1966 premise that he wrote, Kerry uh, Wilbur, he he specified the time period so that it would be 500 years from now. So if that had been allowed to stay in there, that would have dated the original series. And the at least originally, I know they eventually changed their minds, but originally um, Kuhn writes back to him that we are not telling people when the show occurs. They, they were not going to specify that this was the 23rd century, which they eventually did. Um, they're not going to specify any year because they didn't want to get into any kind of trap of how how you know how far technology would come. So you know they were aware of that sort of trying to keep the future you know vague a little bit in terms of when things were occurring. So that makes sense that they would you know perhaps try to vague up that history a little bit. You know. Um, you know, that's when you look at even Star Trek Into Darkness, the, I'm not sure whether Kirk knows when Khan says, I'm Khan. His reaction, they play it in such a way that you don't know, should Kirk know that? I mean, is that a guy saying, I was, I'm, I, I'm Hitler, I'm Stalin, and then we would know that, like, you're Hitler, you're Stalin? Or is, is it that history lost to them? or at least vague enough to them that they don't know it. And certainly in this episode, they know who Khan was. They're questioning whether this Khan is that Khan, you know. Yeah. Um, in, in Into Darkness, it's even vagued up even more, where you, you don't even know if they know who Khan was. Um, you know, they have to turn to, to Spock to kind of tell them and that sort of thing. Old Spock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I love this this costume that's on right now. Uh, William Wertheis, um Khan has more costume changes in this episode than any other male guest star um, in all of the original shows. And I love that despite the fact that they had very little time to make these costumes uh, and to design them, he kept a certain aesthetic. You know, two of them are reuses, right? Two, two of his five costumes. Um, one of them is the Gary, you know, the same kind of uh, hospital uh, clothing that Gary wears in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, and then he wears and he'll he'll wear in a little bit from now a uh, an engineering outfit, which is, suits his character um, as an engineer. And uh, but other than that, the three sort of specific con costumes all have those little ovals, those interconnecting chains. You see that um, in when he's taken out of the cryo chamber. He's in an outfit that's like if you took this and did a you know a, a negative of that shirt, that's what he was wearing. Was these all chains chained together? And then now he's wearing it, and you still get all those little chains together. And then at the end of the episode, when he's wearing that kind of red jumpsuit, 
um, they have the three chains, like there's three chains and then three other little chains going down his shirt. And I always thought that that was either meant to represent DNA uh, and DNA helix or, um, you know, just sort of the notion of something being linked together, linked to the past, that sort of thing. I just, you know, I thought the costuming was wonderful for Montalban in here. It's really interesting. I would have never thought about that. So can we assume that this is Romulan ale? <laughs> if we not retcon, I guess it's retcon. <laughs> One of my favorite things in that last scene with uh, with uh, Khan and MacGyver's kissing is the overhead light that comes on as they lean toward each other. Like a nice fill light comes in overhead so that you get you don't get shadows while they're making out. That's a very Paul Thomas Anderson move right right there. It's Khan's mistletoe. Carries it with him. <laughs> he gets an idea and it as he's kissing and it lights up the top of their heads. This is a great scene. I love uh this is, you know, about as good as you can get in terms of, you know, the the intellect against the intellect between the two of them, you know. Um and then, of course, Spock sort of playing a role within this, and a wonderfully directed scene. You know, um, it was Mark Daniels who the, did this episode, right? Yeah, yeah, he directed. Um, he directed fourteen of the original shows, and he wrote an animated show. Mm-hmm. And he played Jackson Roykirk right, in the picture, uh, Mark Daniels. But he was he was a um, a, a Desilu, you know. Uh, really a Desilu guy, and he had done, I think, the first 18 or something episodes of I Love Lucy. Um, and he was he was sort of a contemporary of Roddenberry. He was part of that generation. Um, some of the staff who skewed younger, like Joe D'Augusta, was more like a 60s, you know, type of a guy where, you know, uh, Mark Daniels, uh, um, Roddenberry, um, Matt Jeffries were all, you know, World War II vets, um, or you know World War II type era guys, and so there was a there was a um, age generational difference um, working with Star Trek, which I think actually played really well um, and helped the show behind the scenes. The two of them play um, Montalban uh, and Madeline Rue played husband and wife six years before this in an episode of uh, Bonanza, which was called Day of Reckoning. And uh, it's, it's weird because it's almost like uh, uh, Wrath of Khan. That's what, the, that's what this Bonanza episode is. They play Native Americans who uh, the good guy, Ben Cartwright, allows to come you know, on their land, and they, you know, the wife gets killed, and, and Montalban's character blames the hero. And you know, it's, it's very kind of Star Trek II-ish. And I had asked uh, Joe D'Augusta, did you cast Madeline Rue because they had played husband and wife before? He said he never knew that, and he would not have cast them. Um, if he had known that, he wouldn't have put the two of them together because Bonanza was too popular of a show, and people would have remembered that episode even though it was six years before. So um, his feeling was he wouldn't have put them together. So luckily, because um, she does a great job with a really kind of strange role and uh you know um 
and then the two of them would be on Fantasy Island again together. Um, she was in the one of the originals versions of the scripts for Wrath of Khan. She was still going to be alive, but uh, and she was still alive, able to play the role. But they had decided that uh, that would give Khan his motivation if she had been taken from him. So are you saying that Bonanza fits into Star Trek continuity? Yes, they, they, right now they're just reliving their awesome. Native American uh, uh, episode there. But no, I mean he was he was a lot nicer to her. And in, in, um, I mean this scene here is just a great example of the one that's playing now with him kind of really being dominant um, and abusive, physically abusive. Uh, this shows you the problem they had with the character. They they knew even in the 60s, that this, it, it was only allowed because he was the bad guy. Um, they would not have allowed that kind of sequence between a hero and his girlfriend um, because no hero would act like that. You know, it was, a, it was a, a really rotten way of behaving, and they knew it was a rotten way of behaving. And that was part of the problems they had with the character of Marla and, and how do you play her so, you know, you sympathize with her, and I think maybe they put that scene in as a way to sympathize with her because you can see her being, unfortunately, she's being victimized in that scene. Um, and it just plays, it, 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 it's one of the few scenes where I watch it now and it plays your heart kind of, you know, you have a, a very different reaction, I think, than people had in the 60s, but, um, but certainly a different reaction than once you really think about that scene. You know, you think about what are the implications of that scene. What is that scene saying about this character? Um, and it's certainly a, a way to make him more villainous because of the way that he he loves her, yet he treats her so uh, dominantly and abusively. I mean, to me, like that scene was always problematic because while it does give her motivation to sort of um, you know betray him and save Kirk later on in the episode. Then when it gets to the end and Kirk's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay and be court-martialed or go live with Khan? It seems like she's, even in that scenario, making a bad life choice by going to this planet with him. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I would be able to buy that more if that scene weren't in there or different. Or at least, I think, at least after she agrees to help him. And then he does that to her, and then she realizes this man isn't who I thought. You know, he's not, he is not a, a, a benevolent person. He's, you know, he is violent and, uh, and, um, and horrible. And then you could see her then switching. Um, there really is no motivation for the switch now, uh, except that he becomes, starts to become abusive to uh, Uhura, in a way. And so, you know, they don't show you that in the same kind of, um, uh, well, they do actually. They do show it to you in the same kind of sort of violent way with him. It's it's not, but that's that's a Starfleet officer. I always saw that as him. It wasn't man to woman. It was con to, uh, you know, con to enemy. Whereas with with con uh, and Marla, it was con, and somehow this was supposed to be part of a romance, and that that scene is included in a romance has always been kind of disturbing. Yeah. So here he is wearing the uh, the Starfleet uniform, which we then see again in, in Into Darkness. Another thing that I didn't think of until watching this today. It's interesting, though. Yeah, that was one of the arguments people had had that, that could not be 
Khan was that he was wearing a Starfleet outfit. And, you know, he does that in Wrath of Khan too, right? He wears, he, he wears the coat. He puts the coat on. He has a, he's like Ursa from Superman too, you know, she, he has this thing about wearing the, the power symbols of his enemy in a way. And especially in Wrath of Khan, he does that where he wears the Starfleet, broken Starfleet emblem and, uh, and, uh, and, and I presume Terrell or some, someone's jacket. So do they explain why he's wearing a Starfleet uniform? Because it, it doesn't really, I mean, he obviously has his clothes because he's got them during the, during the the banquet scene, why why put him in a Starfleet uniform? Yeah, there, there, the original idea was that, and it, and it doesn't come across in this at all, uh, uh, is that he he it was sort of to show him beginning to the idea that he was going to be assimilating to this way of life, and that he was he was given that shirt almost like a sign of respect to him because he had said he was an engineer, and so to oh. show them. Um, there's that, that, uh, if you're watching now and you're seeing him going through with his crew here, Khan, you, you could see that helix, um, on the shirt that I was talking about, but, um, uh, and really fast as a quick side, there is a deleted scene, uh, that would have occurred right after this that you don't see, um, right now when you're seeing the two ships, they would have cut back to the enterprise and you would have seen them all beaming in and then running out into the hallway. Uh, along with Marla, but that was edited out. I, we, there are pictures of that scene, but that was taken out um, partially because they didn't want to get too specific of how we took over things. Um, but but back to that sh- the the uh, engineering shirt. He wears that. Um, the idea being that he was becoming part of this century, um, and whether he was doing that as a ruse to make them think he was assimilating. Um, or not, they're they're not specific, but it doesn't. They don't get into that at all in this in the film version. Yeah, that does seem like a good cut um, to get rid of them beaming back on the ship. Yeah, that was a huge problem. Was how does how does Khan, you know, even with a crew of of genetically superior super supermen and women, how does he take over a ship of four hundred people that they don't have a familiarity with the technology? Um, and they just basically circumvent that whole thing. It's, it's again, Roddenberry's genius, you know, don't, don't show it just, you just, because you're involved in the story enough, you, you know, you don't, you just, if they knock out the bridge, you buy that they've knocked out the ship. And it was just a really great, um, you know, one of the great saves that Roddenberry gave to the script. And, and, and I think trying to help that Marla character and the Khan and Marla relationship, um, a lot of that was sort of Roddenberry too, trying to to fix some of that. You know, uh, didn't I? Don't think did it, did that entirely successfully. But in in that scene, we had Khan and Kirk over intercom threatening one another. So that's kind of very Star Trek two y, except that they're going to meet physically later. I always love when Kirk says they have my ship. That's like such a great, great line because you know that that's about the worst thing that could happen to him. I love this cut, which is coming up here where, you know, we we get the voiceover coming back from the commercial 
everyone is, you know, passing out and, and stuff and and we have Kirk pass out and then it dissolves to just later on where, you know, Khan is in control now, you know, in, in total control. And I, I think it's it's just sort of a great transition because we we see them here being, you know, incapacitated or whatever and we don't I don't know. It's just like the uh, the the economy there is 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 perfect, and 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 using the dissolve and going from the defeated Kirk to uh, a very um, stoic looking Khan. It's it, there's just something about it which is very not Star Trek and and very very awesome. Yeah, the original idea of this scene was. Um, Pretty, I mean, this stayed fairly consistent through all the different versions of the script. The big difference was that Khan doesn't put Kirk in uh, sort of that depressurization chamber. He puts him, he was going to keelhaul him. So he was going to put him off the ship in a spacesuit with only a certain amount of air. And, you know, almost immediately Gene Kuhn told Kerry Wilbur, we fake it a lot on the show. We could never do an effect like that with our budget. There just wouldn't be any way. Um, here again, you see that sort of violence, right, uh, towards towards the women in this episode uh, through Khan and through his, through his uh, henchmen there. But um, this scene pretty much played, played out very similarly to that, uh, to that scene, except with that key-hauling sequence. And then the other big difference was when everybody believes Kirk is dead, Spock basically has the force. You get, you he he feels that Kirk is still alive because what happens is Marla betrays Khan by slipping Kirk an extra like air pack right before he's he's put in you know put off the ship and a little like boost booster thing and Khan Kirk makes it back to the Botany Bay and then from there you know tries to gain control control of the ship so that type of you know the the drafts and the writing of the script the limitation of the special effects forced a kind of economy on the sequence that plays out much better now that kirk is you know why put kirk off the ship to just get back on the ship you know keep him on the ship and do the scene a little bit differently and all they had to do was build that you know little room uh instead of um creating all of that special effects. Yeah. I'm sure part of it was also so they didn't have to show those ridiculous atmospheric suits again. <laughs> cause they would have had to build those cause they only had the, the mesh things from naked time. That's right. I think the two, the two biggest complaints I hear about the episode um, is the treatment of women in this episode, which I thought was interesting uh, and and you know maybe sad that that was also one of the complaints that people had about Star Trek in the darkness not not that women were um, you know here you can really see abuse, but in Star Trek in the darkness sort of the, the the themes people saying that women had to ask permission to do what they wanted you know, everyone else just did what they wanted to do. Um, you know, or has to ask permission to, to do her job. Um, you know, obviously the scene with the kind of the gratuitous scene with uh, with Carol Marcus and so on. So, you know, I, how women are treated um, is a theme that unfortunately carries through all of these, uh, all of these, except for Rathacon where, you know, 
know that that isn't a, much of an issue. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in this, I I see it. Uh, the the only thing that I I see as being you know kind of weird and off with this is is the fact that she agrees to go with him at the end. You know, if if that scene w- wouldn't have been there, then you know I I thought that well, well I I think that all of uh, the stuff in here would be justified in a sense since it's you know not condoning this behavior at all. It's it's using it in a uh, in in a you know, villainous way, you know, to, to tell the story. But yeah, I think a lot of the, the into darkness stuff is people reaching or, or, or maybe looking for things that aren't there. Some of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the, um, uh, I was just sort of thinking with this, uh, with this sequence here to, uh, another difference, just sort of time period, difference in what you were saying about Marla kind of going with him that that was always I mean that that ending there was something about that ending that they liked they liked the idea that Kirk lets this guy live and instead of punishing him understands that he's a man out of time and that Marla is a person out of time right I mean that's why she wasn't originally a historian she was a communications officer but Kunitz said look we already have a communications officer that's Uhura we don't need another one we, we, she should have a different role and they hit on the idea of making her a historian to kind of and there was extra scenes that were filmed and not and, and some that were not filmed that were scripted where you really got the idea that she herself was out of time like she didn't belong in this era um, and that that's the affinity that her and Khan had for one another that gets lost by them taking out those those sequences um, with her, I think they should kind of kept those. Part of the reason they took it out was Rand was supposed to, that was supposed to be Rand, you know, doing that with her to kind of show that she 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 didn't feel kind of comfortable in this era, Marla. But um, they like that ending of sort of sending them down to the planet, and 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 that question of what would happen to these people, uh, and sort of leaving them alive. But in order to do that, they needed to change a lot because. In the original versions, um, Harold Erickson kills that guy Henderson, who I had mentioned, the the prison guard basically on the ship. He kills him. Um, in the rat, when it was Ragnar Thorwald, uh, when it was a character a little closer to Khan that Kuhn had written, he was also very very violent um, in in terms of really harming and killing people. So, but what they realized was the censors at NBC would never allow Kirk to basically not punish Khan if Khan had killed someone. So they had to make it where Khan never actually kills someone in the episode, which may again be why they added those sequences of that, the way that they treat women, um, Uhura and, and Marla in this episode, because they needed to show that he was a villain um, uh, without him actually killing someone. And so that all those sort of things interplay in terms of what happens to this Marla character that makes that ending very strange that she's willing to go with him. Uh, unless, I guess, they really made it be where, look, either if you stay, you're going to go to a prison planet for the rest of your life, you know, or, um, you know, or go down there with him. Yeah, but that's not the way it plays. It plays like, you know what, right. I'm I'm yeah. looking forward to going on this adventure with this dude who's obviously going to be rather abusive towards me. <laughs> <laughs> If, if you're watching the fight scene now between the two of them, you can obviously see that that's uh, a guy named Chuck Couch, 
who's playing Khan, and that's um, uh, Gary Combs who's playing Kirk. And the really cool thing is that on in Wrath of Khan, um, Khan the stunt the stunt man for Khan and also the stunt coordinator for the whole movie was Chuck Couch's brother, Bill Couch. So two brothers, 15 years later, are both playing Khan, you know, in, in the stunt scenes for Star Trek. Hmm. <laughs> so what is this thing that you just hit Khan with? I imagine it's some kind of, like, heavier than it looks tube? Pe- pepper grinder, I think. It's... Um... <laughs> It is, yeah. It's not, and it's not explained why that knocks him out. You know, um, I could see that being one thing where it's like on the page, it's like he takes out this, you know, basically like a lead pipe, you know, and, and beats him with that. But the prop that they use looks like some sort of hollow ceramic or you know <laughs> PVC pipe instead of a lead pipe, you know. Maybe there was a deleted scene in none of the drafts where it was like Khan's one weakness, like his kryptonite, is is warp control rods or something. Yeah. Well, I did always thought it was neat that he gets beat, beaten by something in engineering, which I thought was great because the character, since Khan was an engineer, I don't know that they thought about that when they made the episode, but it's there, you know. Yeah. See, I I actually saw this episode after, I mean, I remember seeing this episode for the first time. It was like two thousand, but I'd seen I'd seen Rafa Khan, you know, a billion times. So seeing this for the first time was really great for me because it was like, wow, you know, the SETI Alpha system. I mean, they set all this up, you know, looking at it as if they had gone out of their way to make this episode tie into the movie. That that's my own limitations there. Well, I love you know Hart Bennett really was a genius and and is a genius and he, uh, you know you're you're given this task of coming up to a coming up with a sequel to a movie that was wildly you know financially successful, um, but critically not received well, not received by the fans very well. I think people have changed their minds about. Star Trek the motion picture, uh, so at least some fans over time. But uh, um, and when you sort of look at what they were trying to accomplish with that, you know, um, it plays a little bit differently. But the the um, the genius of Harv Bennett say, well then, well, if we're not going, we we can't do a sequel to the motion picture. <laughs> Let's do a sequel to an episode. And you know, it is this episode just lays that right there. You know, it it begs for. Um, a sequel, and I think that Harv Bennett deserves a lot of credit for seeing the potential, um, you know, in this. And of course, you know, uh, with Montalban being on TV and so visible in the role of of um, Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island, that it just it was sort of like that was the perfect time to do Star Trek II and to follow up on that story. And I really do think I, you know. I objectively think, both as a fan, I have my, fan, my feelings as a fan, but I objectively think Montalban deserved an Oscar nomination, at least a nomination for that, for Wrath of Khan. And because, uh, especially when you compare his performance here in Space Seed to Wrath of Khan, where in this he's very controlled, a lot more like uh, 
Benedict Cumberbatch sort of plays the character. And then in Wrath of Khan, he's a, a very changed person. Um, you know, he's stable mentally and, and, and emotionally in this, in this episode, albeit, you know, he has his cruelties, um, whereas he's really unhinged, you know, um, in Wrath of Khan. It's just the brilliant sort of shift. And the moments when he has that control and you see that original performance, uh, you know, Nicholas Meyer and him really did a great job kind of creating uh, who Khan was. Well, we're we're coming up on well the end of the episode now. We're in the credits. Um, do you have any uh, final thoughts on on Space Seed? Well, you know, I think uh, it was interesting to hear what, what Drew's experiences were with the episode. I, it, it's almost like watching Star Wars. You know, do you watch it one through six? Do you watch it from four to six and one to three? Um, that that those who who saw this episode first after Khan. Um, that's an interesting kind of question to to see maybe what other fans' experiences were. When did they come across this episode, um, and and you know did that shape you know? So then, did Wrath of Khan feel different for people um, who saw the episode before or after this? And then, does Space Seed feel different for people before or after that? I think that's a fascinating question. Yeah. What what about you, Drew? Anything? Um, like I said, I I I mean, jeez, I was gonna say I just saw it for the first time, but I guess that was what fourteen years ago. Uh, <laughs> but it's Space Seed is a really really good episode, and I can see why Hard Bennett would be drawn to it more than than others, because most of the other good episodes are good because they're self contained. Well, this one has the the sequel bait laying right there. Like, it'd be really cool if we went back to this planet and found this, you know, incredible guest star. So it it, it definitely lends itself for revisiting, and and I'm definitely glad that they did. Yeah, I I also saw um, Wrath of Khan first. It was like the second Star Trek thing ever I, I, I had seen, and I didn't see Space Seed until a few months later. Um, and, and I've often wondered whether I would like Space Seed in, as much if Space Seed would be as noteworthy an episode as it is now had it not been for Wrath of Khan. And um, I honestly don't know what the answer is to that, but I, I do think it is a, a, a great episode. And like you were saying, Drew, I, I think that um, it does lend itself to a a sequel better than, than most episodes do. And I think the way that they spun it the type of sequel that they chose to make with wrath of khan was really kind of amazing but we'll get into that in a little bit on our next commentary <laughs> <laughs> so so uh john you've got um a number of things coming up now in, in terms of space seed itself you've got a, a series of, of articles over on uh the official site, right? Star Trek.com. Yeah. If anybody's interested uh, in, all, you know, kind of a detailed look at uh, the making of the episode, which is based on uh, your production memos and, and uh, various scripts of draft scripts and so on. Uh, my wife and I uh, do write uh, two different columns for uh, Star Trek.com uh, really 
grateful that we can share with fans uh, information that way. Um, one series of articles is about collectibles and try to take a little bit of a sociological look at collectibles. We have one coming up in the next couple of days that's going to take a look at cars. Uh, Star Trek, or Car Trek it's actually called, but it's, it's taking a look at the collectibles that, that are, are automobile based. Um, and but but also throw a little bit in there, a little discussion of you know the role of automobiles and and motor vehicles and you know movies like you know the 2009 Star Trek film and 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 a piece of the action and things like that. So we try to tie it back to the episodes a little bit. And, uh, the other series of articles are more um, what what I do a lot in my research, um, where Mary Jo and I take a look at the production history of Star Trek, and uh, especially along this big theme. That Nicholas Meyer created, uh, or Nicholas Meyer uh, introduced um, in Star Trek, this idea of limitations, art thriving on limitations, and we kind of took that idea and applied that back to both his work and Space Seed and so on. And uh, it's been fun learning about that. And so this that series of articles, there's six of them, um, includes some of those deleted scene pictures that we talked about uh, during the commentary here, the commentary, um, and. Uh, uh, so that's been really fun, and you can find that if you just go to StarTrek.com and uh, just go into the news archives there and look look back a few weeks, you'll see the last of the six Star Trek articles, and then from there you can link back and get all the space seat information. And then you're also uh, giving a couple uh, talks at the uh, Creation Convention in in Chicago in uh, this was it this summer? Is it June? Yes, it's uh, it's the the sort of uh, June, I believe it's the weekend of June um, 6th, 7th, and 8th, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but that's the, I believe that's the weekend. Um, and uh, you people can go to that uh, creationent.com, uh, and they have a list of who's going to be there. And yeah, we're, we this will be our, our, I think, our third or fourth year uh, where we're giving presentations at the convention. And, you know, again, an experience that I'm really grateful for to share this with fellow fans, and uh, we're going to have two talks. One is on the history of Star Trek Voyager collectibles, since there's a kind of big Voyager theme to the convention, and uh, we're also doing a look at uh, Star Trek through newspapers. So we're going to take a look at um, what papers over the last 50 years, uh, local newspapers, have said about Star Trek, revealed about its production history, and uh, we're going through thousands and thousands of articles and uh, found some really great stuff. So that's been a great, a great deal of fun, and can't wait to share that with people at the Creation Convention. Yeah, I, I saw your uh, your presentation a couple of years ago. I think it was on the deleted scenes of the movies. Is is that right? And yeah, that was we did that one. Yeah, about uh, two years ago, I think that was. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that was on two, two, four, and six. Yeah, Star Trek's two, four, and six deleted scenes. Yeah, that was my my introduction to you, and and I've been stalking you ever since. So if you live in Chicago, be sure to go to the to the con, C O N, to uh, see John's presentation. I'm gonna go, and I know that we have some Chicago listeners, right? Dante, Dante, we hope to see you there. Dante, Dante's <laughs> from Chicago. Well, well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, yes, we will definitely have to do Wrath of Khan very soon. Yeah, we'll have a lot more room to breathe with the whole movie to talk about. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I really I had a great time. I appreciate you listening to all the, that information that we had. That was great. Thanks for coming.
John Tenuto certainly knows a lot about Khan. Yes, he does. I I have always been impressed with his Khan knowledge and just Star Trek knowledge in general. And it's just all right there. It's just all on the top of his head. Yeah, I kind of don't know how he knows so much about Khan, but I've got to believe that he knows more about Khan than pretty much any human being on the planet. Because I think we would know if there was someone else who would know more than him, right? Because it would be someone trying to correct him. It would be obvious. It would be really noteworthy, you know? Well, now I'm kind of afraid of of John. I'm afraid that he's going to try to that he is going to try to take over a third of the world. And then you're going to be like, John! Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was fun talking about Space Seed today, but that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Mark Cushman on Season 2. Gene Kuhn was real good at writing comedy. And Gene Roddenberry did not want that for Star Trek. And Roddenberry just said, we are not going to go down that road. Earl Grey. The Borg on TNG. But it's only one episode that we get this, like, technology-obsessed Borg until they become more of, like, a perfection-obsessed Borg. That they're trying to complete themselves, I guess. It's it's just kind of a strange anomaly. There's a hole in their heart that only technology can do. Yes, Borg <laughs> are the Jerry Maguire of You Complete Me. The Ready Room. Remember me. Well, one thing I, you didn't mention, that, that the fact that this is the only TNG episode to make it to Lilith Fair. You know, will you remember me? <laughs> oh, na, 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 na. Really? I mean, that, that's, you didn't know that? Okay. The Orb. Ferengi values versus Federation values. We, we look at the Ferengi and we bristle at them because we don't like being reminded that we lived our lives evolutionary-wise, and, and that was all there was, you, you end up with nihilism. To the journey! Janeway's best command decisions. I might be able to understand where you're coming from if part two of Scorpion was not completely devoted to explaining how Janeway was wrong in every single way. <laughs> Warp five. Prequel technology. You almost feel like photon torpedoes should have happened 50 years after Enterprise, and they should have gone through three different kinds that you'd never heard of. Yeah. And I, it's, that seems more right. real to me. Commentary, Trek stars. Robert Hewitt-Wolf on Trek. Some elements that are in Deep Space Nine that uh, I've never been able to quite fit together with other elements, I think it might actually start to fit together once I, I understand Robert Hewitt-Wolf's involvement. Who I like to call RH Dubs. Literary Treks. Editing Star Trek with Margaret Clark. I try to make sure that the books are true to their theory. That if you're right. reading a TOS book, it feels like, okay, Bob Justman would have bought this story. He couldn't afford the effects, but Bob Justman would have gone into Gene and went, you really should read this, this is good. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom, or you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Let's tell everybody where to contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on today's show. Just go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send a show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the right-hand side of any page to send us a voicemail using your webcam's microphone. 
And you can talk to us and other listeners on our forums at trek.fm slash forums. In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit standard? Uh, well, you can find me here on Trek FM doing commentary Trek stars with my friend Max. Right now we're doing a series on uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf's career as an unsung hero. And you can also find me and Max along with our friend Brandon on commentarytrackstars.com where we do commentary track stars off topic. And you can also find me on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email me at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and pretty much everywhere uh, under that username. If you see one who's not me, let me know, and I'll take care of them. We have a new iTunes review. It's from WSJI Names. And his subject is Trek FM's take on TOS. All the Trek FM shows are well-produced and fun listening if you're into Trek. As with their other series-based shows, each program focuses on a broad topic, e.g. a character, a season arc, a theme, rather than being an episode review. The hosts have a good sense of humor, directly and indirectly addressing topics that contrast TOS with the more modern shows, such as the obvious production issues and... Of course, the greatness that is William Shatner. Yeah, thanks for thanks for the review, WSJI. Names. Names. <laughs> I, assume, I assume that was their last name. I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> we appreciate the feedback. Uh, we really do. We sure do. Before we go, we'd also like you to support our sponsor, who makes it possible for us to bring Standard Orbit and our other shows to you each week. Our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible is something for everyone. There are numerous classic TOS books on Audible as well as some of the all-time favorites like Prime Directive and Federation. Mike, what's this week's book? Well, this week's books, in keeping with our Khan theme, is uh, Star Trek The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Singh, uh, which was written by Greg Cox, and it's narrated by Anthony Stewart Head. He's the guy from Buffy, right? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's it's all about uh, Khan's origins, I guess. Here's a little summary from the publisher. Even centuries later, the final decades of the 20th century are still regarded as one of the darkest and most perilous chapters in the history of humanity. Now, as an ancient, forbidden technology tempts mankind once more, Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise must probe deep into the secrets of the past to discover the true origins of the dreaded eugenics wars and of perhaps the greatest foe he has ever faced. And then it goes back in time to 1974. Now, have you read this thing? No. I haven't read it either, but I know Max has read it. And he came to me uh, back when it came out, probably right around, you know, maybe like 10 years ago. And he was like, these eugenics wars books, they're really good. He's like, they, they do some crazy stuff in, in terms of trying to fit it into the continuity, but also fitting it into our real world continuity. So, like, it involves Gary Seven, and there's all these, like, covert ops, and basically, from what I understand, it it 
claims that the eugenics wars were like a series of, of secret wars. And Max was saying that it's really good. And for Max to say that a movie tie-in book is really good is uh, very, very high praise. So I'm assuming that these things are decent. Um, and you can get it for free. So even if it's not decent, it's like, who cares? Uh, all, all that you lose is uh, um, three hours of your life. Well, yeah. <laughs> that is that is high praise coming from Max. Uh, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, whether it's The Eugenics Wars or anything else we've ever talked about, along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a f- try today. Catch up on all the classic books you've yet to read or that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank you and Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Also, if you would personally like to support Standard Orbit, the network, and our programming, visit trek.fm slash donate. We have eight alien-themed badges and art prints as a thank you for your contribution, and you can mix and match badges and art prints. There are different levels of donation to choose from, and your contributions help us cover the cost of production, storage, and bandwidth needed to bring Standard Orbit and our other shows to you every week. There's no con one, though. I guess he's not an alien, is he? No, he's human. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of land. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.